Do you remember when Earth Day was fun? When I was a child, Earth Day was still a pretty new holiday in the national schema, but a holiday nonetheless. I remember little recycling projects and planting trees and generally celebrating the wonderful planet that hosts us. It was a little blip in the year, just a reminder that we might want to pay attention to that planet. And for some folks, that's still what Earth Day is. I was watching some Thursday night sitcoms and saw that NBC has changed its logo green for the week. It's a powerful gesture, isn't it? I should add that they have also created a blog about how to go green with some recycling and reusing ideas and inviting participation. Of course, the blog advertises all the NBC shows, but with the titles in green so that you know it's part of Earth Week. Now, I don't know, maybe knowing that their favorite stars and shows are going green in some way will inspire action from Americans. It is certainly true that the more people hear about the importance of reducing, reusing, and recycling, the better. I don't live off the grid myself, obviously, since I was the one watching the sitcoms. And it's unlikely that we'll all suddenly leave our commercial lifestyles behind. So to the extent that we will need some support from within that commercial lifestyle itself, I applaud NBC for getting on the bandwagon. But. But it seems as though perhaps the time for little green logos and tips about recycling might be over. I mean, we should still have tips about recycling. I recycle. My three-year-old daughter asks which trash can for every single piece of trash that she throws out. We have three matching ones in our kitchen because while we like recycling, we also like aesthetic symmetry. So it's a little hard to tell which is which until you open them. But I believe the time has come when recycling is definitely not going to save us. And I do think we need to be saved. Or rather, we need to save ourselves somehow. I am a bit of a Pollyanna in general, usually looking on the brighter side of things. I tend to be the one who doesn't mind that you have to jiggle the toilet handle every time you flush it. Because after all, how hard is it to jiggle a handle? If it's not entirely broken, I think, is it really worth a lot of effort to fix it? Should we maybe just learn to live with a little less perfection? Well, here is a news flash. Our environment, our planet, seems to be pretty much entirely broken. At least that is the premise of Bill McKibben's new book, Earth, spelled with two A's because he thinks we live on a different planet than we inhabited before, and we ought to rename it to make that clear. Now, to be fair, one of McKibben's earlier books is entitled The End of Nature, so he does seem to have a kind of knack for arresting titles and concepts, and I'm sure that that sort of controversy doesn't hurt his book sales. His point in this book, though, is well taken and well researched. McKibben's basic idea is that we have already so affected the Earth's environment that we aren't really at a point anymore of needing to stop the damage or even to reverse it. He believes that instead we have to acknowledge the very different world we live in, a world that is increasingly hostile to human life, at least as we know it, and to the rest of life for that matter. One of the particularly poignant ways he makes his point, at least to me, 
is his insistence that much of the language used by politicians and even environmental activists is a few generations off. We are entreated not infrequently to pay attention to the environment for the sake of our children or our grandchildren. Too late, says McKibben. It was really our grandparents who should have paid attention for our sake. We are the grandchildren who have already lost our home. As I mentioned, McKibben's book is well supported by research and statistics. He cites studies on everything from coral reefs, which are no longer considered viable forms of life and are likely to disappear within 50 years, to a study conducted by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, which concluded that, quote, changes in surface temperature, rainfall, and sea level are largely irreversible for more than 1,000 years after carbon dioxide emissions are completely stopped, end quote. As McKibben sums up, and I quote him, the planet on which our civilization evolved no longer exists. The stability that produced that civilization has vanished. Epic changes have begun. And McKibben is not the only one who thinks so, not the only lone prophet here. Rich Reese shared with me an issue of Scientific American from September 2010 with the startling cover title, The End, although the subtitle, which was a little bit more comforting, reads, or is it? <laughs> Question mark. The pertinent article about the dwindling resources of our planet begins in this way, quote, if the 20th century was an expansive era without boundaries, a time of jet planes, space travel, and the internet, the early years of the 21st have showed us the limits of our small world. Regional blackouts remind us that the flow of energy we used to take for granted may be in tight supply. The once mighty Colorado River, tapped by thirsty metropolises of the desert west, no longer reaches the ocean. Oil is so hard to find that new wells extend many kilometers underneath the seafloor. The boundless atmosphere is now reeling from two centuries worth of greenhouse gas emissions. Even life itself seems to be running out as biologists warn that we are in the midst of a global extinction event comparable to the last throes of the dinosaurs." End quote. Kind of sounds like it is the end to me. What follows are a series of alarming statistics and graphical representations of how little oil we have, how much food will cost soon, and how many species will soon be extinct, among other things. And following that, if you aren't depressed enough already, is an article that tries to guess how the end will ultimately come. Killer pandemic, runaway global warming, nuclear war, giant asteroid. Take your pick. Rich actually put together a chart comparing those different possibilities and the odds that they would happen and concluded, quite rightly, I think, that the odds are much higher for the human-created phenomena. In other words, our ultimate destruction may well be coming, and if it is, we are almost certainly the architects. Everyone cheery now? Ready to go home and have your Easter egg hunts if your family does that? or finish your celebration of Passover and the joy of freedom, if that's your tradition. Ready to, I don't know, continue on with some semblance of potential happiness in life? When I first told the Earth Ethics Group that I was planning to combine some thoughts on Earth Day and Easter, they looked, maybe skeptical is a good way to describe their reaction. 
and who can blame them? Ethical culturists are a little hazy on Easter under any circumstances, and the relationship of the Easter story to our call to transform the earth might seem like a stretch. To the credit of everyone in the room that day, I don't believe anybody has actually boycotted the platform this morning. Thanks for hanging in there. <laughs> because actually, I think that there is the potential to explore some real resonance between Earth Day, and particularly the catastrophic possibilities that our time holds, and the stories of liberation, hope, and renewal that we find in almost every religious tradition, including ours. Last week, when I addressed D.C. voting rights and invited this congregation to work with me on a solution, I identified hope as one of the reasons that we have religion, really one of the reasons that we gather in community, period. And if ever we needed hope, it's after reading some of the statistics that McKibben and other environmental activists present to us. A little education can be a dangerous thing for our sense of security. A little hope is a necessary thing for our continued well-being and for our ability to act. The Easter story is, at its heart, a story of hope. Hope and possibility. In fact, possibility that seems ridiculous on its face, that seems beyond improbable. The central theme of the Easter story for most Christians is the miracle of the resurrection, Jesus' raising from the dead. Like many of you, perhaps, I have had an uncomfortable relationship with Easter. I like the eggs and the bunny. I'm not so sure about the Jesus part. Actually, I will clarify that. I really like Jesus. I'm not so sure about the resurrection part, I guess. During my childhood at a Unitarian Universalist congregation, I was in good company. The whole place was not so sure about Easter. I remember one year when the main controversy swirled around whether or not we could have an Easter lily up at the front near the pulpit. Pro, Easter lilies are really pretty. Con, they are Easter lilies. The resolution, lilies were okay, but not Easter lilies. Or maybe they would be okay if you bought them in ignorance of them being Easter lilies and then kind of looked vague if anybody asked you about them. So you can imagine that I was a little unprepared when I arrived at the lovely Methodist seminary I attended and found a whole lot of people who felt very sure about Easter and what it meant for them. Here is a hint. It is not about jelly beans or even lilies. Since I'm not a Christian and no one in my family has been Christian for a few generations, seeking out a personal meaning for the resurrection hadn't been that important to me. But I found over the course of my three years at seminary that I wanted some way to understand this foundational piece of the Christian faith, some way to translate it for myself, to have a sense of what it might mean for those to whom it clearly means so much. I found my answer in a class I took my third year from a fabulous feminist biblical studies professor who was ordained in the United Church of Christ, one of the most liberal Christian denominations and incidentally, whom I ran into just the other day at Parkway Deli, right around the corner, which of course adds more legitimacy to the sense that she's somehow connected to us. If we can't come together around free pickle bars, what do we have? Anyway, this particular class that she taught was about the Gospel of Mark, my favorite of the four Gospels, all of which tell the story of Jesus's life and death. 
The Gospels were written a couple of hundred years after Jesus lived, so each one of them incorporates different stories that have been told about him, remembered in different ways, and then retold based on a particular slant of the author. The Gospel of Mark lends itself to a particularly radical socio-political reading of Jesus as someone who came to turn upside down the social and religious structures of his day, who sought to bring together people who were outcasts from society and offer them a seat at his table. Mark is a natural fit, as you can imagine, for social justice types. And to be honest, I liked the gospel even better because it doesn't include anything about the resurrection. Or at least it didn't originally include anything. Many scholars today believe that the long ending, as it's called, which does talk about the resurrection, was added by a much later author so that the Gospel of Mark would match the other Gospels. The original Gospel of Mark, it seems, ends with the women followers of Jesus finding, after his death, the empty tomb. It hints, in other words, at the possibility that something miraculous has happened, but it doesn't really go so far as to say that. Like many rationalists, I like miraculous hinting more than out-and-out -out miracles. But I still wanted to understand the resurrection from my friend's perspective, to understand how even for my very liberal Christian colleagues, this miracle felt foundational to their faith. So that's where the professor came in. She explained her own understanding of the resurrection, and for the first time, it made sense to me. One of the hallmarks of the stories of the resurrection that are in the Gospels is that the disciples initially fail to recognize the risen Jesus. They see him walking with them and they think he's just another disciple, maybe a late addition to the group. Then all of a sudden, they recognize him for who he is. Hey, that guy who's been having dinner with us all evening, that's Jesus. Rather than understand that as an example of the disciples' foolishness, though, my professor turned the experience of sudden recognition on its head. For, here, for her, the miracle of the resurrection was not that an actual risen Jesus began to walk on earth, but that the disciples, Jesus' followers who were, had been so hopeful and excited by his ministry, and then so horrified and downtrodden at his death, began to see Jesus around them, to see Jesus in each other. The miracle was that after Jesus' death, the hope he represented to the outcasts lived on and was recognized in the community that he had created. I recently came across a blog called TheReligiousLeft.org and found a great posting by a seminarian named Crystal Lewis. She had pretty much the same take my professor did, and I loved how she put it. She wrote, those who claimed that Jesus had risen, the quotation marks are hers, were telling the powerful that despite their attempts to bury hope and equality, despite their efforts to kill the voice of the one who had touched them when no one else would, despite their efforts to entomb the good news that was being preached to the poor and the radical message of liberty for the captives, the hope of the people would continue to live. For us, she goes on, Resurrection means that hope is still brewing, even in the most corrupt systems. For me, hearing about the resurrection in this way makes it indeed a powerful story of hope. It's still not the dominant story in my life. 
one way that I define being a Christian is that no matter how you interpret the story of Jesus, it's the most important story you know. For me, it's not. But this understanding of the resurrection, the idea of that the miracle is the choice to keep hope alive, it helps me to connect with the story in a way I couldn't before. And of course, the Easter story, the Christian story, is by no means the only religious story that calls on our belief in hope. Last night, we celebrated our ethical culture Seder here in this hall, retelling the story of the Exodus, the struggle and eventual freedom of the Hebrew people after having been enslaved in Egypt. That is another story that, depending on whom you ask and how you read it, is full of plenty of miracles. And it is another story that has at its heart the ability of a people to continue hoping even when hope seemed dead. I think, too, of another old story, one that is no longer ritualized in a modern religious way, but that many of us learned in school. Do you remember Pandora? In Greek mythology, she was the first woman on Earth. You know how it usually goes for the first women. She was given the gift of a beautiful jar by Zeus, the greatest of the gods, a jar she was not to open. Well, who wouldn't be a little curious? Pandora opened the jar, and out came every evil thing in the world, pestilence and war and disease and famine, probably global warming and nuclear meltdown and disappearing coral reefs, too. In one fell swoop, Pandora ruined the world for all of humanity. She snapped the lid back on the jar, but then she heard a tiny voice pleading with her to let it out. So that curious Pandora opened the jar one more time, and out came hope, the gift that Pandora gave to people, hope which somehow made the world bearable again. Here in the ethical culture movement, we don't think that hope escapes from jars or is granted by gods to us. We think that hope lives in us, is created by us. I would say it's one of those things that is larger than the sum of its parts, though. That it might have entirely human origins, but that somehow when hope is fully present in the world to us, it feels bigger than any of us could have imagined, bigger than we really could make it. It brings with it courage and possibility and above all, an impulse toward action. It refuses to allow us to stay stuck in despair. As I've thought about Earth Day this year and the ways in which the Earth may already be destroyed, I have needed to believe in hope. Because frankly, if McKibben is right and we can't fix the world for our children or our grandchildren, who are having their egg hunt outside right now, if we have already inherited a world past fixing, it feels pretty tempting to just throw up my hands and forget the whole thing. The way, if you will indulge me just a little in my metaphorical thinking, the way the disciples might have thrown up their hands when they learned the news that Jesus had died. He was the person they thought might change the world, and he was gone, so just forget the whole thing. So maybe it's that idea my professor shared with me of the disciples seeing the resurrection in each other, seeing hope in each other, 
that had me thinking I could talk about the Easter story and Earth Day in one breath, or at least one 20-minute block. Because I'll tell you that I find my greatest hope in seeing what people are doing, in seeing the unwavering dedication of our own Earth Ethics team, in reading about the activism of young people around the world, in knowing that people like McKibben, despite his dire prophecies, isn't just suggesting that we forget the whole thing and move to Mars. What McKibben actually suggests is that we hunker down, that we get smaller. In the last century, he thinks, we focused on growth as though growth is an end in itself. In the new world we've created, we need not growth but stability, not expansion but care and community and connection. So McKibben touts local food sourcing and small farms and technology that enables people, particularly in poor countries, always the hardest hit in any kind of environmental crisis, to use what they have to get what they need. McKibben is clear that he doesn't think we can change the effects of climate change that have already begun and that are almost certainly heading toward us in ever more ferocious ways. But he thinks we have a choice in how to respond to them. We can choose how to build a new civilization, one that seeks both to shield all of us from the increasingly hostile elements and that works to slow the way that we are the source of that hostility, to move toward at least a better relationship with our environment, even if we've missed the boat on a good one. I'll add just one more thing about environmental action and Earth Day. McKibben talks a lot about the importance of small communities taking care of each other in this new world, but I think there's also a need for legislation both national and international, that changes how we live in drastic ways. Our individual efforts are important. I'll keep recycling, partly because at this point in my life, I would feel so weird throwing out a plastic bottle. But if we really want to survive the coming and present crisis, we need changes that are on a big scale, changes that are required of all of us. In the interconnected world we live in, we need to locate not just our hope in each other, but also our survival in each other. And that means working as a species to try to slow the devastation we have wreaked on the planet. I don't know what all that legislation should be. People with many more degrees than I can figure that out. But I do know that it will likely be unpopular and will need support. And I'm willing to give it. I loved the piece our chorus shared this morning and that Rich read during our meditation, that meditative art, earth song. It held in it a great deal of pain for the ravaged world, but also an affirmation of life and hope found in music. Whether you find hope in music or in another person's eyes or in a beautiful story, or in your own sense of commitment. I wish you plenty of it today and in the week and month and year to come. I wish you hope in the century to come, a century that, if McKibben is right, will be a hard one. Don't let hope die. Let us renew it again and again together. <laughs>